Uh, as you came in, you'd receive one of the news sheets. Uh, inside there is an outline of the talk. If that helps you to follow along, please feel free to use that. Uh, more importantly, keep your Bibles open, uh, as I'll be referring to passages from uh, Habakkuk 3 and other parts of the Bible. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help. Gracious Father God, we need your help. And nothing will happen in our hearts and minds unless your Spirit uh, causes your Word to powerfully provoke and challenge and comfort us. Help us, Father, to know that you are our God and you are enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my grandparents lived on the island state of Penang in West Malaysia. And in those days, Penang would have been this sleepy, beautiful island paradise. I can imagine how terrified they would have been when the quiet was broken by the sound of air raids, bombs, gunfire. The Japanese army invaded in 1941 and occupied Malaysia. In Penang alone, 2,000 locals were executed during the occupation and many women were forced to become comfort women for the Japanese soldiers. My grandfather was forced to learn Japanese and then to teach Japanese to other Malaysians during the occupation. Now I've been trying to imagine how I would have responded if I had witnessed terrible things or had property stolen from me, freedom taken away, or seen loved ones killed. If I had been in my grandfather's shoes, would I have been consumed with hatred or filled with despair? What would I have said to my people? How would I have related to God during such a trial? The prophet Habakkuk is staring down the barrel of an occupying army. God has told him that the Babylonian army is coming. It's just a matter of time. In front of Habakkuk are dark days. Dark days of suffering for the prophet and his people. How will Habakkuk continue to relate to God in the suffering ahead? What will he say to his people? Each one of us will face dark days ahead. If you live long enough on this earth, you will suffer. I can assure you of that. How will you respond to God during those dark days? Will our trials make us better or worse? We're going to see how Habakkuk relates and responds to dark days in this final chapter of his book. Chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk is the prophet's final response to God. By the end of chapter 3, Habakkuk will respond to God as his saviour and his strength. And it's been quite a journey for Habakkuk in his relationship with God. At the start of the book, Habakkuk was wrestling to God in honest lament. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? God then responds to Habakkuk's complaints by telling him that he is bringing judgment upon his people of Judah. He's raising the nation of Babylon to judge them. And then in turn, God is going to judge the Babylonians for their pride. And by the end of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is silent. There is no more complaint. Habakkuk realizes that God is the judge, just, just judge of the world, and every mouth is silent before him. Now, this is a turning point for the prophet. Habakkuk trusts that God is the only one who will save, 
Who will he save? Well, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous who live by their faithfulness will live. Habakkuk's response is then to turn to God in faith, to trust his great God. So there's a movement. Habakkuk has gone from lament, then he's gone to silence before God. And what is his final response to God? It's singing. I wasn't expecting that. Singing. Chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 19. Have a look at those verses. Chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. Habakkuk has written in this chapter what looks like a psalm. The start of the psalm refers to Shigianoth, which no one really knows exactly what that means, but it appears also in Psalm 7, and it may be a musical term. The last verse, verse 19, says, For the director of music on my stringed instruments. And this appears on many of the psalms. So clearly this song that Habakkuk has written is not just for him, it's for all of God's people to encourage them to keep praising God in spite of their circumstances. Now, like many of the psalms of lament, the psalmist makes a movement. The psalmist can begin with lament to God and then eventually end up praising God. And that's what Habakkuk has done in this book. And in this final chapter, in this psalm, there are three sections. I'm going to look at each one in turn and going to apply each one in turn. And these responses help us to know how to respond to the dark days ahead. Pray to God, remember God's works, rejoice in God. Pray, remember, rejoice. Well, firstly, pray to God, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. What this short prayer shows us is rather than pulling away from God during a time of anguish, Habakkuk has learned to lean in on God even more. Habakkuk stands in awe of God's works in verse 2. Literally, Habakkuk fears the Lord. The healthy fear of the Lord that the Old Testament says is the beginning of wisdom. And rather than trying to change God to suit his circumstances, Habakkuk wants God to be God in his generation. Repeat your mighty works in our day. And I like that last line of Habakkuk's prayer, in wrath, remember mercy. God, I know you're a just God. I know that your anger is a righteous anger. I know that your anger is coming on our people. But please, I appeal to you because you're a merciful God. Please show us mercy that we don't deserve. Now, that is not without precedent in the Bible, is it? Back in Genesis, God, God told Abraham that he was going to destroy the city of Sodom for its grievous sin against him. And Abraham was there with God pleading for the righteous in Sodom. Abraham was appealing to the mercy of God, even in God's anger. Genesis 18, verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from me, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
It's a bold prayer, isn't it? As God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in his anger, God heard Abraham's prayer and he spared Lot and his family. You know, it can be easy to allow a kind of Christian fatalism to develop. Oh, if God's going to be God anyway, why bother? Why bother praying? I mean, God has told Habakkuk what's going to happen. Judah is going to be judged. Babylon is going to be judged. I mean, why does Habakkuk even bother praying? You know, if you pray, the only prayer really worth praying is, your will be done, God, your kingdom come, God. But that's not the Bible, is it? Real people in real life speaking to a real God. Of course we should pray, your will be done, God. But we should also pray in wrath, remember mercy. For God is both the sovereign judge of all the earth, and yet the Bible tells us that God is also compassionate, that he is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. We are to pray, the Bible tells us, continually, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayer. So in the dark days ahead... Will you pray to God? Learn to pray now before the storm hits. You see, when you suffer, all your emotions will say that God is silent. All your feelings will rage that God is distant, that he doesn't care. Remember, that's what Habakkuk felt at the start. And prayer is an act of the will over your emotions. Prayer is an act of trust. God, I feel that you are far from me, but God, I know that you are not. Please, God, in wrath, remember mercy. Pray for the city of Melbourne. This city is the envy of the world. People risk their lives to make this city their home, often fleeing places of great suffering. And yet for all of Melbourne's livability... This is a city that faces the severe judgment from God. That is an unpopular thing to say, isn't it? But it is the truth. Like Judah in chapter 1 and Babylon in chapter 2, Melbourne sits under God's judgment for turning away from God. Millions of people in this city face God's judgment. Dear God, in your wrath, remember mercy for Melbourne. Well, having prayed in his psalm, Habakkuk now remembers the mighty works of God. And what Habakkuk does is he rehearses the great acts of God saving his people in history. Habakkuk speaks of God coming from Teman and from Mount Paran, real places that God brought his people through during the exodus towards the promised land. And God is painted by Habakkuk as this ultimate warrior. Verse 4, his splendor was like the sunrise, raised, flashed from his hand. Verse 5 speaks of plague and pestilence before him. And we're reminded of the plagues that God brought as judgment on Pharaoh and his people in Exodus chapter 7 to 11. Verse 6 speaks of the earth shaking, the nations trembling and the mountains crumbling. And we're reminded of the incident on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And the people are in reverent fear of the holy God. 
Exodus chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And it is not just God's people who tremble. The enemies of the people of Israel are also in fear of God, the warrior. The people of Cush and of Midian are mentioned in verse 7. Even creation itself is tamed by the God who controls streams and rivers and oceans in verses 8 to 10. Just like he did when he parted the Red Sea to save his people from Pharaoh's army. God can even hold the sun and moon in its place as God battles for his people, which is an allusion to Joshua chapter 10, when God holds the sun still until the Amorites were defeated by God. God is both the judge of the nations and the deliverer of his people. Habakkuk verse 12, in wrath, you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. And when Habakkuk mentions the anointed, I think he's referring to God saving the anointed King David. Habakkuk chapter 3 draws a lot of imagery from Psalm 18, which David wrote describing God as warrior and saviour. In Psalm 18, David finishes his psalm in verse 49. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. God will crush the leader of the land of wickedness, verse 13. Whether that is Pharaoh or the Amalekites or the Babylonians or Saul, God will save the righteous who put their trust in the warrior king. And as as Habakkuk writes this, he's not just a prophet, he's a pastor. You know, Babylon is advancing on his people. He knows that his people are facing dark days ahead and it will be easy for them to forget the great things that God has done. They must put their trust in the God who saved them in the past. That is why it is so important to remember God's mighty works because this same God will do mighty works in the future. The Apostle Paul was also a pastor. When Christians suffer, he knows that they need to remember the past in order to look forward to an uncertain future. And where should Christians look in the past? Look to the cross of Christ. Look to the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's mightiest work of them all. If Habakkuk had known of the cross, I think he would have put it in chapter 3 as the greatest of the king's mighty acts. This is what Paul says in Romans 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see what Paul's doing there? Look back in order to look forward. Look back at the cross and see that God has made you right with himself. Look to the death of Jesus, the one you put your faith in. So when you look forward in the future, and when you see God coming to judge the world in just anger, 
remember that the God who saved you in the past will save you in the future. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Look to the cross, Paul says, where God reconciled his enemies through Christ's death and made them his children. So that as you look forward, when you suffer, that you need not fear that God will abandon his children. Let me ask you the question, will you remember God's works in the dark days ahead? You know, that was the problem with the Israelites. They grumbled against God because they forgot what God did for them in the past. And God taught them to remember, to teach their child to remember his mighty acts. But invariably they forgot. They turned away from God. They trusted in the idols of the nations and they made their situation worse. When you face dark days, it will be easy for your heart to betray you. Your feelings will take over. God doesn't care for me. God is distant. God is silent. That is what you will feel, just like Habakkuk did in chapter 1. And to remember God's works is an act of the will, in spite of your feelings. When you feel bitterness forming in your heart, when you feel like despair is about to carry you away, open your Bible as an act of defiant will. That is what Habakkuk does, doesn't he? He has not lived through these events. He opens his Bible as an act of his will. He remembers God's mighty works in his mighty word. Open your Bible and remember the God of the Exodus. Remember the God who judges the nations like Babylon. Remember the God who saved King David. Remember the God who brought his people back from the exile. Remember the God who saves you through the cross of Christ. This is the same God you are to trust in who will save you in the dark days ahead. Having prayed and remembered... Habakkuk's final act in his psalm is to rejoice in his God. And what I appreciate about Habakkuk is he's so real, isn't he? This is not the fake pretense of a, a painted-on smile. Habakkuk knows exactly what his people are facing. When Babylon arrives, the people of Judah are going to face severe judgment by their holy God. Verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk is shaken to the core at the thought of God's judgment of his people. And yet it is his confidence in God's judgment of Babylon that will get him through. The God the prophet worships is completely just and completely merciful. And so the right thing to do is to wait for God patiently. Just like the psalmists and others do in the Bible, he must wait for the Lord to act, even when all he can see around him are the dark clouds. Now witness in the book of Habakkuk how far Habakkuk has come with God. Remember how he started this book. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? 
That's the start of Habakkuk's journey. God was silent. God was passive. And look at his response now. He's been reminded that God is not silent. God is not passive. God is the God of justice and mercy. Yet, I will wait patiently. Friends, what what has brought about this change in Habakkuk? You know, two weeks ago, I asked you the question, what if God was completely committed to the good of his people? But what if our good was for God to change us and not our circumstances? By the end of the book, nothing in Habakkuk's situation has changed. God will raise the Babylonians. Jerusalem will fall. God's people will be exiled to Babylon. There will be utter desolation. And what will Habakkuk's response be? Verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. God has changed Habakkuk's heart. Instead of finding joy in changed circumstances, Habakkuk finds his joy now in the Lord. The Babylonians may take everything from him, his livelihood, his property, his status, but they will never take his trust in God. Habakkuk's faith is stronger than ever. He knows that it is God alone who can save him. He knows that it is God who is his strength in an uncertain future. God will make his footing sure like that of a deer. What if our good was for God to change us and not our situation? And what if that change in us was to teach us that God is enough? Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Holocaust survivor during World War II. Her family were devoted Christians who lived to serve God and serve others. And in their house, the ten Boom family constructed a special hiding place. And they used this hiding place to save the lives of many Jews from the Nazis. At the start of 1944, Corrie ten Boom's family were arrested after they were turned in by a Dutch informant. Corrie's father died in prison just 10 days later. Corrie and her sister were transported to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And both sisters witnessed horrific things. And even after suffering brutal treatment, the sisters continued to minister the gospel to the women suffering around them. Betsy Ten Boom died at the end of that year. And Corrie was released just nine days later. Upon making her way back home, Corrie learned that her nephew had also died in a concentration camp. Now, trials like this would have every chance to make a person bitter, wouldn't they? Suffering like this could give birth to hatred, to vengeance, to despair. 
Instead, these trials made Corrie ten Boom better. After the war, she set up rehabilitation centres to help former concentration camp prisoners to cope after the war. She also ministered to former enemies from the war. One time after a speaking engagement, Corrie ten Boom came face to face with one of the prison guards from Ravensbrook. He asked her to forgive him and she clasped his hand and forgave him for the things that he had done. She spent the remainder of her years writing books, travelling the world to speak of God's forgiveness in the gospel. Now, friends, I want to live like that, don't you? I want to live life with joy and purpose, where pain and suffering make me better and not worse. Don't you want to live like that? How do you live like that? Corrie ten Boom once said, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. The world might plunge into war, my investments might collapse, my education might not be worth the paper it's printed on, my kids might hate me, my spouse might leave me, I might lose my job, my health will fail me, my heart will disappoint me. But if I look at Christ, if I look at Christ, I will be at rest. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. That is an echo of Psalm 73 where the psalmist once envied the good life of the wicked. And then like Habakkuk, he engages with the God of justice and mercy. And he realises that the fate of the wicked is judgement. And he realises then that all that he has... All that he has is God. And he utters that famous prayer to God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, you are all I have. And you are enough. That is a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? God, you are all I have. And you are enough. Sometimes I catch myself half praying this. Dear God, please teach me everything you want me to know without suffering. Dear God, teach me everything I need to know without taking anything away from me. God won't answer that prayer, will he? Because he loves me more than that. Because he knows me better than that. He knows how stubborn my heart is. And that by stripping back all the other things I look to, he will compel me to look at Christ. 
The Apostle Paul once said in Philippians 3, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I was humbled in this last week to speak and pray with a Christian brother who with tears in his eyes shared with me all that he has lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And he has lost everything. And at times he feels utterly alone. But he knows that he has nowhere else to go but to Christ in whom he has everything. Friends, when the dark days come, and they will, where will you find your joy? When everything you rely on is stripped away, where will you find your strength? When you lose everything and everyone, who will save you? Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And again I say, rejoice. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you so much for Habakkuk. We thank you for his real relationship with you and how you have taught us so much from him. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the God, not just for the fair weather, but for the dark days as well. Father, you know our hearts. You know how easy it is for us to trust in anything and anyone else except you. Gracious Father God, please help us Help us to pray. Help us to remember. Help us to rejoice in you alone. Gracious Father, please be our joy, our strength, and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.